You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. Just want to give you a heads up and what you're fixing to embark on. Charles Beatty is a poacher that has been, he had a 20-year reign um, throughout the King and Kennedy ranches deep in South Texas, sometimes going, you know, 12 to 15 miles deep in the backcountry, camping and killing and poaching world-class deer. Throughout those years, he killed 116 deer off the Kennedy and the King ranches, and the story is really something I've never even thought about before. Like, you can't make things like this up. I don't agree with poaching, I don't promote poaching, I'm not trying to give a platform to poaching, but the man's story is nothing short of remarkable near-death experiences, um, the type of deer, how many deer, the methods of taking them, the the methods to avoiding capture of, of helicopters and men on foot, it's just absolutely crazy. I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and definitely listen to the whole thing. Peace. On the podcast, I'm here with uh, Charles Beatty. Uh, he is the Prince of Poachers, famous for poaching on the King and Kennedy ranches uh, in South Texas. Uh, Charles, maybe you could tell the listener just a little bit of, about yourself and uh, kind of what your story was. Well, I think I'm just like all the other hunters. I, I was born addicted to white-tailed deer hunting, but I didn't find out till I was about 14 years old. But you know, I had the opportunity through my Texas Army work to for a job offer in deep South Texas that took me into the heart of the King Ranch and kind of came down on a promise that if I went and things worked out, might end up invited to hunt the King Ranch, and, and that didn't develop. Ended up joining forces with another major taxidermy there in, in Kingsville and met the big clan of all the outlaw deer hunters, and when I gave up on getting invited to hunt the king ranch legal you know i was easily persuaded to to jump the fence and once it got started it just took off there wasn't no turning back and um it just my head got completely out of control i mean i was as addicted as anybody on drugs to the hunting you know and I, i wasn't trying to cut corners or cheat and steal i was after the biggest deer i could get and i wanted the odds in my favor to do that you know, the best way to do that was go to unhunted territory, large ranches. At that time, you couldn't even pay to hunt on the King Ranch. It was invitation only. And you had to really be, you know, in with Flynn to get the invite. But when that didn't work out, I, I turned to a life of outlaw hunting. So when was the, the first time that you decided to go hunt, uh, you know, illegally on the ranch? And how did that first encounter go for you? Was there any fear on in that, or how did it, how did it well, play out? I didn't have any knowledge to fear anything about it. I went into it blind. I mean, I had five guys come in the shop and told me it'd be okay to go with them, and uh, we 
went broad daylight one Sunday afternoon and it was kind of a misty day and, and uh, the, one of the boys' girlfriend drove us. And, I mean, there was uh, three of them and me and a buddy of mine. So there was five of us that went over that fence, I believe, that first time together. And we rattled up deer within two, three miles of the, of the highway. And um, I shot a, a seven-point buck on that first hunt just all new to me that you know the deer looked okay to me to go ahead and shoot him and i shot him and my buddy you know he had a misfire on an empty chamber on a nice 10 point buck but it wasn't three or four days later me and my best friend went back and, and hunted by ourselves and we both killed nice bucks both killed nice 10 i killed a 10 point and he killed a 13 point it was in our blood then to do it outlaw because we saw that we weren't going to get invited and he went down there with me on the same note and it didn't, wasn't going to work out so you know we went into the outlaw hunt and full speed ahead yeah so you maybe you could give me a little bit more uh, in depth of how you got to the point of you know you wanted to hunt on the ranch you lived down there and you found out it was really political down there to even get an invite on the ranch what did that look like well the game warden in that county, one of the two or three different wardens there, he was married to a lady taxidermist. And that lady, you know, was in with the ranch due to her husband being the game warden. And all the business had been shifted from the other major taxidermy, their direction. And and uh, that guy had lost out to him already before I got there. And so then she had full control of all the influence and invitation hunts that were in existence, you know, through the ranch. I had no chance. My friend that worked with me that I trained had no chance. We, we realized it pretty quick that we just weren't going to get invited. That wasn't a possibility. So when we met the outlaws and, and they told us they could teach us how to jump the fence and it was easy to get away with, and, and when we saw that it was, you know, there was no point. I mean, we just had no choice but to go outlaw hunt. We actually had a couple of... Uh, lease opportunities that we paid to hunt on up in Demick County and all those day leases and stuff. None of that panned out. It was shot out. It was not going to happen there. And we were just eat up. We wanted to kill big deer. I mean, we would go and visit the King Ranch Refuge. You could drive that scenic tour. It was about a 12-mile road, and it led in and around the ranch house headquarters. And well, you see bucks everywhere. We counted four. 48 bucks on a straightaway of about three miles one evening in, in the rut, pouring rain, you know, drizzly, great, rutting weather. And we saw big deer, just big deer after big deer after big deer. And by then, you couldn't stop either one of us. It was like, okay, well, we got to have one, but we couldn't do it there. You know, it was the refuge all around the main ranch headquarters. But, you know, we went other places. Mm-hmm. So you started out on hunting on the king ranch and how did the progression look to to eventually hunt the kennedy ranch i know both those are two of the bigger ranches in south texas when did you decide to do that well i had a couple of real close calls nearly got caught you know uh, with horse riding cowboys rounding up cattle and run right over the top of me and uh, i was in on a hunt by myself that time but we've been chased out at night you know rattling at night you know, on the backside of the refuge and, and swarmed by all the heat coming in from every direction. And I knew it was a matter of time before I was going to get caught on that King Ranch, but I met this man in the taxidermy shop there that um, had his work done and owned a, a section, half a section in the Kennedy Ranch. And when he took me and showed me his place and we jumped his fence and hunted any direction we wanted to go in, you know, 
that was it. I was like, it's too safe down there, you know, to even consider going back to the King Ranch. I mean, I did at times at night with a friend of mine or two, but only at night I wouldn't go hunt the King Ranch in broad daylight anymore. It just wasn't going to be worth the risk. So the King had a lot more security and a lot more people looking after it compared to the Kennedy? They did, but they also had the open country. You know, the mesquite and grasslands, too easy for them to spot you out of a plane. You couldn't hide underneath any heavy brush to speak of. It just wasn't there. The live oak canopy in the Kennedy Ranch, though, provided a perfect cover to do what we were doing in the form of outlaw hunting. You know, you could travel any direction you wanted and not be seen. Yeah. How far back in did you typically go before you would start hunting to just to make sure you were the the most safe, you know, because I know you're hunting with a rifle. It's typically pretty loud. How far back in there did you have to get? Well, this, that man's property was seven miles deep to his gate, and then he had, a, you know, sections, and another mile further was the backside of his property. But then, as it progressed, if year after year, I began to go deeper and deeper and deeper, and most of the time in my latter part of my career doing it, I would hunt like a minimum of 12 miles deep and, and hunt from their back, 18, 19 miles deep. That's that's insane. Yeah, it's, it's a big place. Yeah. I mean, so if you're getting way, way deep back in there, what are you, what are you bringing to make sure you're going to be able to stay and and what, at what point did you decide, you know, I want to be back in here. I don't want to do it for an evening or a couple of days. I want to be back in here for a week or more and, you know, see what kind of buck I can actually get. Well, that's what it led to. I, I would end up going there and staying three, four, five days and sometimes a week. And uh, when I'd given it up, then I went back and broke all my old records. Uh, at the longest time I'd ever stayed before was 11 days. But when I went back to posting after a six-year break, I set records. I, I hunted a 16-day hunt. I hunted a 27-day hunt. I've hunted, you know, numerous amounts of 11 and 12-day hunts up in the brush in, in Demick County, and I would go for lengths of time like that because I didn't want to be anywhere else. I didn't have a wife anymore, and I didn't know where I'd rather been. When I stayed 27 days, I did not want to come out. And I had a plan, backup plan, if I wasn't at the highway to come back two hours later. And if I wasn't there, come back a week later and repeat steps one and two. And, you know, my ride man knew that if, you know, if I wanted to stay another week, I would. Mm-hmm. I mean, so he, he wasn't worried about me. I mean, it's like a police officer said that I, you know, took. A buddy of mine got worried about me on that long hunt. He said, you know, we think we need to call down there and check on him. He said, no, Larry, they'll give him a call if he's caught. He said, Char, by now, it was three weeks into the hunt, and he said, by now, Charlie's either dead or he's having the time of his life. <laughs> and he was right. I was having the time of my life, and I did not want to come out. Yeah. So was that the hunt that you were out there and you had brought a certain amount of food and you ended up drying out backstrap or something like that just so you could stay longer? Uh, I think you're talking about that 11-day hunt on the old days. That was back in the first seven years, and I couldn't build a, a fire. I had too much air pressure. I was circling at night and trying to spot fires. And When I hear a plane circling like that, I knew they were looking for an outlaw fire, and I couldn't build a fire. I couldn't even eat cooked steak. 
So I would have to, during the mid-afternoon, when the wind was dry and it was warm, I'd season meat with seasonal with some salt in it, helps draw the moisture out, and then I'd hang it on a string that I took to clean my bore with. I'd rag on one end with a needle that would drop through and uh, on a cord, and I would pull that through the bore if I got dirt and anything in the barrel. Well, I'd just turn that thing into a jerky rack and hung, you know, much backstrap cut thin on it as I could, seasoned heavy, and in the wind, let it dry down, and then it got crusty. I'd eat it raw. So the only way I could get a meal. Yeah. So I know throughout the book you talk a lot about rattling bucks up. And where did that where did that technique come from? Is that something that you learned from the other outlaw hunters or something that you kind of pioneered yourself? No, they were all doing it when I got there. It had been going on for years. But that was an area that it was highly successful at. I mean, just in that ranch and, and that deep, if there's any weather at all at the right time of year, you rattle something up almost every rattle. I mean, you could go in there and see 150 towards 200 bucks in a three to five day hunt. It was insane how many bucks you could rattle up. What's the most bucks you've ever rattled up in a in a single day? Well, over 100 in one day. Oh easily. my goodness. And how how do you have the the persistence to you know pass hundred? I know you t- in the book you talk about <laughs> passing 150, 160 inch deer because you just didn't want to be done hunting. How did you, you do that? Yeah, you can't carry that many deer out of there. <laughs> you know you got to select the one or two out of a hundred, hundred fifty to two hundred you've seen, and let those two be the you know one or two be the icing on the cake. You you couldn't carry all the nice deer out of there. I mean, I'm saying one forty eight nut you're just on you all over the place you see them constantly you know younger deer they weren't quite old enough to peak you know i mean you see a lot of 20 inch deer which mm-hmm. used to be regular in in the brush country and then it got kind of scarce over there but a lot of spread deer but they were more seemed like more non-typical you know 14 15 point bucks in that kennedy ranch i saw a lot of handlebars forts double eye guards uh, points off the base there were just a number of varieties of non-typical racks over there that was entertaining. You didn't, you know, you didn't have to kill them. Getting the film was a lot of it. Mm-hmm. But you waiting on that one big head out of every 100, 150 deer you saw, and you didn't have to hesitate. When the right one came out to shoot, you knew it. If there was ever any hesitation, you, you knew not to shoot. Yeah. So at what point did you decide after killing you know quite a few bucks that to, to start bringing you know friends and friends of friends out on the ranch well you know i had a good hunting buddy a guy that i got real fond of and we became hunting outlaw hunting partners you know george moore he was already as bad as they get when i met him he'd done incredible things he's passed away in the last seven or eight years i can now tell when i'm about to go back and write some of the wild stuff he did because he was one of the worst outlaws ever born and raised down there and he ended up being my partner my other buddy moved back to fort worth and i stayed down there me and george became a duo and i mean we'd hunt facing each other watch each other's back and we took turns and you know when the deer would come in behind the guy that was shooting we could point where it was coming from and, and pretty well advise him with a thumb up or thumb down as to whether it was a shoot or not and you know some of my stories are all about that eye expression you know i've seen his eyes bug out and he's you know seen mine you know when a big one was coming in behind either one of us 
when you see bug eyes, you know, you know it's probably a really good deer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there was a lot of, you talked about harvesting a lot of non-typical bucks, and that was your favorite kind of deer to shoot. Yeah. Now, what's what's some of the the crazier non-typicals that you've seen or taken off the ranches? Well, a deer that got away on me, that's in that part one of my book, it just makes me sick to this day. It was a nine-point frame, mm-hmm. but he had can opener hickeys all the way up both back times. I mean, that deer was so beautiful, it wasn't even a question of was I going to shoot him or not. I've never seen one that pretty. And, I mean, he probably had a total of 22 or 3 points, but on the 9-point frame. And he was 5 yards from me when I dumped an arrow down the front of his chest. And when he reared up, that arrow almost all the way disappeared, but the fletching and blood spiraled out in my face just like a water hose just come out in an auger spiral and he you know air come out the back of his liver on the right side and he wheeled and run and i thought i had him no questions asked when you tube one down the front like that that's a bad shot if you leave one lung clean for them to get a wind on keep oxygen in their bloodstream you better leave them alone a couple hours or more but it, the, the blood trail was so gruesome i thought well i've got this deer he's gonna be you know down any minute sure enough i jumped him in 70 or 80 yards but uh he took off and kept having to go down he was so weak but he kept leaving pools of blood just filling the cow traps and, and you know deep spots in the sand just pools of blood everywhere i kept pressing him i thought he was just done but he started doubling back on me and i started having to figure out what he was doing and as he quit bleeding and then he you know cinched up from rolling in leaves and quit bleeding on me completely the last thing i found was where he did double back he went straight ahead and left leaf with a bloody hairy pattern on it that i spotted and picked up after searching and he got in some dense heavy brush and i never could find that deer and i was climbing trees and looking down into that heavy stuff and trying to smell him you know heavy rut and buckle stink pretty good and i literally lost that deer and you know no hope in no time at all of finding him it just made me sick i shouldn't have pushed him any at all but he, he was just beautiful they don't make them any prettier he was a good you know size but he was just beautiful with all them can open hickeys up both back times from about two inches off the beam they started and that's seven or eight of them on each oh, back man. time two and three inch long can open hickeys just beautiful what do you think that deer would have scored well he was in the 170 plus gross class with all those extra points yeah but, yeah he, he was about a 148 or 50 you know nine point and then he had all the trash he had 20 something inches of trash easy that's an incredible deer you you were you talked about one that one of the bigger deer that you saw there was a truck not too far from you while you were going to take that deer and you had to sit there in suspense and just watch him walk away could you talk a little well, bit about that yeah, he was a Benny Crockett but I just couldn't shoot him I, I, I shot and the shot was so loud and, and they barreled in on me and they were so close I could hear the fan blade turning in the Jeep as they pulled up near the mud I was in on and you know it's a longer story than that but you know I'd laid all day on the first day of, of the 11 day hunt and I had two buddies with me that separated at daylight they went one way and they popped a shot they actually shot twice not long after we separated and drew heat I heard a four wheeler go after them so I was ready to kind of move on out of that area go to east go deep we weren't but about eight or nine miles deep when that happened 
And I spotted this 30-inch spread buck laying down in a swell. And I mean, he was probably 300 yards from him. But his spread was wider than his body was long looking oh. at me laying down. And there was no question he was a book deer. He was a 10-point buck. He, everything he had was, was, you know, fair length, you know, 10-11-inch long points. No, the, the back times weren't the longest. They were, you know, second longest. But that deer curved back in. The beams turned back in box card. He didn't just yawn. He was a full boxed-in rack. And I couldn't shoot him with the pressure right over there. And I said, well, I'm going to wait till dark. If he's going to stay laying down all day, I'll shoot him at dark. And while I kept going out to this little you know, brushy mott and looking at him, checking him again. I noticed three more bucks, 500 yards down in the swell too, in high grass. One had a fairly dark rack. I could tell more about him than the others, but then there was two more that were really big. All I could tell was heavy kind of grass-colored beams on both of them, and uh, I knew one was a sled runner with heavy beams, but the other one had these handlebars. They still had velvet on them. They were black. It was black velvet skin on the throw tines and he had 15 inch back tines and when i shot uh, later in the afternoon I, what i did i got restless and i rattled and then a big old typical 12 run up on me and i went high 160s i gotta shoot him and i said shoot him and run out there and kill the 30 inch spread i literally blew off the other three at that point i had no consideration for them i had planned to go get about halfway between them and shoot the 30 inch deer and then turn around and shoot whichever one looked the biggest out of the three when they gave me a little better look at them but my plan changed suddenly i, I screwed up by even rattling because i rattled up a beautiful deer and when i got settled in on the back of his neck head he turned his head on me as i shot and blew his eardrum off his whole bait ear, ear butt the whole butt of his ear just disintegrated and his ear fell limp barely hanging by a string and i got real upset that i'd missed him and then i kind of choked on how long how loud the shot was mm -hmm. and then while i'm cringed i'm hearing pete coming and then i hear buck running on the leaves and it's the widespread 30 inch buck and he runs right in on me and i couldn't shoot him i pulled up meant to squeezed on the trigger not realizing i had when I bolted in a new shell, I put the safety back on. I had cringed so bad. And so then I squeezed again, rechambered another shell, squeezed, and, and I went, you left the safety on. I, I was, you know, caught up in the moment, the heat of the moment. I wasn't thinking clear. And when I realized I had left my safety on, I got on him, but he'd moved behind some heavy brush, and I shot through the brush. And when I shot through the brush, he ran forward about 30 yards and crashed, and I thought I had him. And he, he was still up on his knees, heaving, choking. Looked like maybe I'd shot him through the throat, and he was choking out. Or lunged him, and he was choking out. So I was just convinced I had him down. I got the 30-inch spread. While I'm hearing the vehicle come on in on me, those other three bucks from 500 yards off came right in on me. I was on the main game trail that they used, and they spooked out of the clearing and came right in on me when the shooting started. And one of those, you know, I saw the one with the... Uh, Black horns first, he just danced right on through. Ten point, heavy horn, good buck, 150 buck. And then right behind him was the one with the 15 inch back tines and the black handlebars. And he had a book frame. And I was like, I got to shoot that deer. And I went, I can't shoot again. I had this vehicle pouring in on me. And then here come this typical deer. He was the one I could tell the least about all day. And that buck had 20 points if he had one. He had web beams all the way out, everything was 11 inches the end of the beam and the beams came up nearly reached the the last shorter points which were still eight or nine inch the deer was over 190 typical 
Oh. I've seen a, we picked up a skull in that area that was in the high 170s, and he was a kinfolk of that deer. That real web palm heavy beam, sled runner, long, a lot of typical points. I, I'm trying to get a hold of a picture of that deer, kind of to represent that one in a, in a revised version of, of part one. But that deer would go over 190, and I couldn't shoot. I had this vehicle coming in on me closer and closer, wide open, so I couldn't shoot him. But while I was listening to that vehicle come in, I sort of went into the spell of that deer. I went into a trance, and that deer just stayed. The rest walked on through. The other two went on through. I couldn't even see the wide one down from where I was at that point. I'm concentrating on that typical. And he steps forward about 30 yards and stops. And from behind, I went into this trance. And I'd heard the fan turn on that motor when they cut it off right outside the knot. But I was captivated by that buck. And I... My mind just kind of wandered, and I went, shoot that deer. And I put it off safety, and I got a rest against the tree, and I had it on the back of his neck, and I started squeezing, and the weight came out of the trigger. And I caught myself right before it went off. I said, I can't shoot that deer. I can't shoot that deer. There's a truck right outside the mod on me. I said, you better get your shit together. You're fixing to get caught. So I, I, you know, I got in some, this heavy cat claw over next to me, and I put my face in behind the thickest part of it, slipped on some camo gloves, slid them over my face, and was peeking through my fingers, and uh, you know, waiting on anybody to, to walk in there on me, looking, and no one come in. But about ten minutes after dark, they cranked that jeep. I stayed. Sounded like a jeep to me. All in all, I'm still thinking it was a jeep. The game worms, I told them this story, and they didn't seem to remember who was driving a Jeep then, but somebody was, because that's what it sounded like. It, you know, some type of four-wheel drive off in the rough sounded like a Jeep. But anyway, no one came in there, and I still stayed still for a while. I was afraid they might have left a man sitting there and drove off to decoy me and get me to come out of hiding. And so I stayed put, you know, for a little while longer until they went well out of distance, you know. So then I, I said, well, get in your sleeping bag and get some sleep and go over and cape that wide one off when you wake up to pee. I was still afraid to move. I didn't want to move around any. I want to get in my sleeping bag and stay put. thought they still might have had a man out on me there. So when I woke up about 3 in the morning, the buck was gone. I couldn't find him anywhere, and I was sick. And I combed that mop running back and forth till it broke daylight. Or burnt my flashlight plumb up. As it cracked daylight, I could hear the troops coming. And old Tommy brought the helicopters, and I mean, the first one that got up sounded like they had me on a, a radar screen. You know, he came right at me, and I was already breaking out of the back of that live oak mot. It was about a 400 oblong, you know, yard-long uh, oak mot. I broke out of the back of that mot in a dead run, fully loaded backpack, bow, gun, rattling arms, everything. And this is a dead mesquite flat that had been sprayed, apparently. It was defoliated, and I could see this one big tree with some vines ivy like vines growing around the trunk so i focused on that started running right at that because that helicopter was coming on me so quick and just as i got to it i, I dove in and turned my backpack to it to take the impact and it bounced me back out away from it and i just shoved myself right back up against the back of that tree <laughs> the helicopter went right over me first pass i jumped right back up took off running it was about three four hundred yards till i hit live oak again but then i didn't stop running for four miles Oh. And they kept putting up helicopters in that area, just all around there, and combing it. And by dark, I was some 10 miles further east, 9 mm -hmm. or 10 miles deep, and uh, deeper than that. And so I was in the clear, and I shot a buck right before dark, but uh, a 160 buck with 14 points. But, uh, you know, that, that was a, such a sour feeling. But about eight or nine days later, I killed a 180, 12-point <laughs> 12 12 point buck, and 
made everything feel better. You know, but I had blown it. If I would have killed that Boone and Crockett, the, the, I think three of those uh, five deer would have went in the book. The 30-inch buck probably went in the book easy. The, the one with the handlebars might not have made it because of the handlebars, but the typical, he was a solid 190 deer. And you know when I mean when I die I'm gonna ask God, hey, show me that typical. I want to hold him. <laughs> I gotta hold that typical in my hands. I've never been a typical man. Yeah. But that that one with twenty plus points, I know he had more than ten on each side. I know he did. You couldn't count them. It looked like you know all your fingers sticking straight up on both sides, and they were long. And there wasn't a short point on the rack. I mean even his eye guards were long. But if he didn't score 190, I never was born. I mean, I'm thinking he might have broke more than 200. I'm just conservatively guessing him at a solid 190-plus buck. There's no question in my mind he wouldn't score over that. But I'd love to hold those you know, horns in my hand after I die. If I can get a favor out of God, that'd probably be the only <laughs> thing I'd ask for. Of course. <laughs> so what? Uh, how many deer do you think through all these years you saw of that caliber, of that 190-plus caliber? Few very few I, I have seen typical deer that would book, get away from me but that one was way up there you know he was he was the uh, upper echelon i never saw a typical like that i had a friend saw one in the pelon seal in Denver county and he describes it he, he just blew it he let him walk across a break and then it winded him and took off and he never saw him again but he described it to have 14 typical points that just towered you know with 14 and 15 inch length oh. and just nothing but typical just a gorilla and she said look big as a brain my bull big old black deer i had told him you know shoot one in the hip if he won't stop when he crosses a break like that and, and, and if he won't stop when you bleed him and he didn't do either one he just choked watched him walk across and he thought well i'll get him down here when he comes out the next opening but he was 70 yards downwind to me and the buck came in about 50 yards downwind to him so that buck was real smart and he just he smelled him and took off, and we never saw it again. He, he never laid eyes on it again. Man, that's that's insane. You need so two people when you're hunting a brush like that because you got to have a man 50, 60, 70 yards downwind to you, or you're not even going to see those big bucks. They circle 100 yards downwind of the rap. Mm-hmm. So how did you... How did you evade, besides being in, you know, obviously pretty good shape, you know, being able to carry, carry a massive pack in there and uh, run four miles with it on, what what other things added to your stealth, or how did you how did you get in there and, and not, get, not get spotted by any choppers or not get caught by any infrareds or anything like that? What was your strategy? Well, the brush was heavy enough to protect you from being sighted if you stayed in it. But when you felt pressure, you try to get away from it, not even be a possibility of them putting a bunch of men on foot and catching up with you like that. And so you'd stay as far away from any pressure you felt. But I had a tent lined with infrared heat barrier, but aluminum, you know, I'd glued in there a contact cement where it'd be flexible enough to stay glued and, and you could fold it up and put it in my sleeping bag. But I only really used that when I felt heat because I was just so deep. And I was in such heavy brush that, I, you know, I felt like there's no way they're going to be able to find me. But I suppose it was a possibility at times, but it never happened. I never felt pressure at night. You know, I never felt any of them coming looking for me at night. they just the flying. You'd hear the planes looking for some stupid idiots with fires. You know, somebody really planted it done. Mm -hmm. I built fires, 
when it was overcast heavy or raining, you know, freezing cold, you can build a fire. There's nothing to come out there then. You're heavy enough brush down in a swell where you're not, you're not flickering out where anybody can see the fire light at a distance on the ground even. But you can't see 20, 30 yards in places less when you want to get hid. You can hide. Mm-hmm. So how did you utilize, like, uh, people picking you up? Uh, you know, what kind of areas did you have them pick you up in where it wasn't so obvious? Well, one of my tricks was drop off and pick up in a wide open grassland area where there was not brush near the road because all around this roadside park that a lot of outlaws jumped in on, there was brush near the road and they felt safe doing it, but there was also a lot of heat. So I had this like a reverse disguise. This old buddy of mine would call it reverse polarity and I was getting kicked out in grassland. It'd be six miles before I could hit brush. And I would walk from the highway all across these little well roads, these little, you know, the, the roads that led to all the drilling sites, windmills and stuff, and I knew them. I could walk them in the dark without having to, you know, use a flashlight at all. I knew how they all interconnected, and I'd just take those roads back through till I finally hit brush. But because I was going in and coming out in that wide open grassland, they, they kind of weren't expecting that. I think they were, you know, they were missing that a little. They thought people wouldn't feel safe doing that, but that was just, you know, one of my Mickeys, I slipped them. <laughs> yeah, that's a. I feel like that's a pretty good strategy if they're expecting you to, you know, come in, come in and exit at the thickest part of the ranch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. So, could you tell me a little bit about maybe your your best day out hunting in terms of how many you killed? What's the the most bucks you've killed in a day, and you know what were those bucks like? Well, I had a year that was the best year. Okay. And I killed six bucks that year. And, you know, one was just a 140-something bow kill, but I also shot a 166 typical, 23-inch spread. But four days earlier, four or five days earlier, I shot the freak that I call the freak, and he was a 171 non-typical with handlebars, double tines, double crap claw beam endings, and extremely massive and knobby texture like I like almost twice as heavy as that typical 12 but you know killed a devil drop in my sleeping bag on another hunt <laughs> and uh, you know just lately see, i've been through a battle with cancer for 15 years and, and my recall is not what it is without sitting and thinking it all over but i killed you know six deer that season it was the it was the most that i shot in one year you know, I'd have to stop and think a minute which ones all the rest of them were, but those were the outstanding ones. The double drop, the typical swell, the, the freight. I killed one I called the sled runner that had 26 and a half inch, almost 27 inch main beams. And I killed him on the same day I killed the freight. That was a pretty good day. Shoot those two together. And, uh, you know, he was in the mid to low to mid 160s. He was a 13 point deer. Yeah, that's. So I, I would like to hear a little bit more about the one you shot out of your sleeping bag. I read it in the book, but if if someone's listening, I want to yeah, I want to give them a little context and you know kind of how that happened. Well, I had my lifelong buddy with me that had moved down there with me, you know, to mount the quail for that taxidermy shop and all, and then he had moved back to Fort Worth. But he made a visit that year late. We went on that hunt. I believe it was between Christmas and New Year's, and. Boy, it had been good cold weather. My boss said it had been in the 30s for about nine days straight, but we went in on, I think he, he said it had been that cold six days, and we went in on a three-day hunt. Well, we got deep, 
and uh, my buddy had, had a little trouble shooting. He's a crack shot, but I think he got a little excited after shooting and hitting a tree on the first shooter we had in front of him, and it got away with a leg flying, and, and so then later, close to dark, got him on a 150-something deer and a 13-point, and he missed him, and I was shocked, and then he got him, and so uh, next morning, I kind of ribbed him about it, but it broke daylight, and it, as it was breaking daylight, I, got, I sat up in my sleeping bag just enough to put my camo top on, and I couldn't resist. I went ahead, reached over and grabbed my rattling horns, beat the bone, he's getting dressed, and, you know, we had three bucks come in first, right off the bat on that rattle. One of them was an 11-point typical, and he had 22, 23-inch spread, but he just thin horned. He wasn't quite what you'd want to go ahead and shoot. And I buttoned a few more buttons there and let him kind of get out of my view where he wasn't looking at me and going to blow me, and I popped the horns again, and boy, when I did, I heard brush breaking in this big overhanging limb about 40 yards from him. It was kind of an opening there where the light shined bright. And this buck come running out from under that overhanging limb, and I knew something really weird about this rack in, immediately. And I was like, what is it? It looked like one of your old-timey field goals. And he was running this way, that way, charging those other bucks. And when they gave heed to him and took off, it hit me. I went, double drops. So I just threw up and got out in front of him. And when he ran through at about 35 yards, I had rest off one knee I cussed it off on him and hit him running wide open right behind the crease and he went down about 20 yards and I couldn't help but rasp my buddy a little bit I broke the boat and I went that's how you shoot a buck <laughs> of course he, he didn't like what I had to say if he was his remark back so you know anyway he goes you ripped me off you, you talked me into shooting that deer last night that would have been my deer but anyway I, I I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about shooting a devil drop buck while still in the sleeping bag half naked, and it just came to mind. I said, I just dub, double bagged a double, I said, I double bagged a double drop buck, and it just must have stuck after the calling it that. Yeah. I don't think any, nobody, surely nobody has ever shot a double drop out of their sleeping bag like that. Yeah, I'd, I would, I wouldn't imagine that <laughs> that's ever been yeah, replicated. Yeah, that, that's one of a kind. So and he was a beautiful deer. I've got pictures of him, but he's one of the heads I turned in when I wiped the slate clean and and quit poaching for six years. I turned them all in. So when you turned them, when you turned them all in, was there any uh was there any kind of punishment there? You know, for all the poaching or how that? No, no. Those game wardens in Tarrant County up around Fort Worth, they kept up with me, and they knew I post all them deer. But they knew I quit, and they knew I had my own shop and was going to church and got married, church pianist, and they were keeping a close eye on me. But I had talked to them and said I was thinking about turning them in, that I felt like that's what God wanted me to do, and uh, they'd mock me a little and say. Well, it sounds like you dug yourself a pretty deep hole there. They, you know, they were kind of tormenting me a little all they could. They didn't probably think I'd ever do it. But then I called them up and had them come load them all up. And um, they were just respectful of it. They said, well, you got to go with your convictions. you got to admire you for doing what you feel convicted to do, you know. But I never saw that I would ever go back to poaching any, you know, any, ever. And then it worked out that I did. Never, I never saw that coming. So what? Uh, what initially um, made you quit for the six years? Was it a you know a calling from God that you felt like you know you were supposed to quit poaching and promote you yeah, know? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm actually a preacher's son. Okay. My, pap, yeah, my papa was a preacher, 
and you know third generation of it but i've stayed out of church since i was 10 or 12 years old my whole life and my boss in fort worth taught me into going to church with him and when i went man i've come under conviction i didn't know what it was nobody told me what was going to happen to me when i got there in church but you know it was like it was more like turning yourself into law as a wanted man i, I kind of like turned myself into god i knew all i'd been doing my whole life was was wrong and nobody had to tell me i knew exactly what i was i was a sinner i mean i went, went after all the women i went after all the beers smoked weed and danced and uh, you know i was living it up there was nothing right about any part of my life but i didn't realize that I would change that all this stuff would be a part of my past. But then they sprang that you can't do this, can't do that list on me anymore. And I was like, well, I didn't see that coming, but I didn't believe it would happen. But when season after season came and went, and I wasn't drawn to go back to poaching, then I began to believe. I said, you know, something happened inside me. I, I don't care for it like I did. You know, and, and I, had, I had sincerely give up that addiction to it i was free from it i didn't have to go i wasn't compelled to go before that i was like a heroin addict needing another shot of dope i mean i had to go hunt the rut every year i was totally addicted to seeing all those deer you know and being out there you, you couldn't have talked me out of it through some psychologist or psychiatrist or nothing like that i was you know in need of some kind of divine intervention or i wasn't ever gonna quit it <laughs> yeah so what uh what ultimately led you back to it you said you quit for for six years and then what's the moment that that leads you back into that you know the life that you once given up well it's kind of a long story on that but you know my wife had gotten involved with a backstabbing buddy of mine and she stole custody of our son with a bunch of criminal you know perjuries forgeries conspiracy her parents were wealthy and bought high dollar attorneys and they schemed up this big thing on me and had me locked up and the judge was on the tape took a payoff stamped the divorce decree while i was being held and and she got a hundred percent restraining order against me in full custody of my son i'll say it this way it was our son right. but she's so selfish she ran off with my boy and you know, met a banker from Missouri in the middle of it all and then dumped my buddy and went after this banker in Missouri and ran away to another state. Well, that just left me sitting there free. I mean, I was free from her. It was like, thank God and Greyhound, she's gone at that point. But I lost my boy. And I was bitter about it because of the state of Texas' involvement in it, believing her lies against me. And it was like, no justice. A horrible injustice was done to me, and I got really angry about it. And I got fit, and I got in shape, but I still didn't have any intentions to go back to poaching. And after being locked up on her lies like that seven and a half weeks for the first time in my life, I had a fear of being locked up. I had, you know, just a little bit of respect for the law as far as you can end up locked up over the poaching. I, I didn't know if I wanted to ever risk anything that would put me in, in jail. So I didn't have any plans to go back poaching, but this police officer, taxidermy customer of mine, he come in one year and got all fired up when a pretty nice 140-something buck came into my shop to be mounted. And that just fired him up enough. And I had another buddy sitting there that had been doing some outlaw hunting start talking him up and, and talking me into uh, taking him to some extent. And he said, I'll loan y'all my backpacks. I didn't have backpacks anymore. And he said, I'll loan y'all two backpacks and, and uh, my rifle. And, uh, you know, y'all take off tonight. 
Well, then he takes that cop to his house and shows him all of his trophies and gets him real amped up. And then he brings him back to my shop and says, you got to take me. And I said, well, you can't. we can't go in two days. He's wanting to take his two days he had coming off and uh, go down to South Texas and back. You can take that nearly to get there and back unless you go at night, which we did. But, you know, he said, I'll go talk to my chief, see if I can get two more days off then. So he goes and talks to his chief. He left my shop in a squad car in uniform. He come back playing clothes in his truck. He said, I got the two days extra we need. I got the four days we need. Let's go. He called my bluff. I didn't really feel like going as far as wanting to hunt myself, but I got fired up about taking him. I could see how much he loved it and wanted to never kill a big deer, and he paid high-dollar prices for years, never killed a deer, everything shot out everywhere he hunted. So I felt for him. And I mean, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to take you so I shut the shop down and went. And, you know, he killed five beautiful deer. He got the 20-inch spread inside spread buck that he wanted, 10-point buck, 157 inches. He got a double-drop deer with, you know, a beautiful, elaborate look to the beam, like melted wax and just drip, dripping formations all the way up and down the beam. A phenomenal deer as far as its appearance went. Just That's why I let him shoot it. He wasn't a real big deer, but he was so beautiful I had point blank. I saw all he had, and I said, shoot that deer. And he shot it, but he bow-killed another one. I bow-killed a 140-plus buck, and, I mean, we had a great hunt. I mean, there's a whole lot to that story. But, um, you know, when we got back, his closest friend was another cop. And, you know, when he showed him the horns, told him the story, then that cop insisted that I take him too and that surprised me and him both because that other cop was real by the book and it was like he didn't even hesitate once he saw the horns and the success we'd had and then his buddy told him how easy it was to get away with it and how deep we went how safe it felt getting that far in there there wasn't no telling him he wasn't going to go then he he saw his once in a lifetime opportunity to go and hunt a place that would bring him a big deer uh, it guaranteed him a harvest of a big buck with his longbow he was an archer he was an ace archer a heck of a shot but uh, you know after they got me back to loving hunting now i went crazy i just went hog wild i actually started acting out a vendetta against the state i mean it wasn't the ranch's fault what happened to me in that divorce and losing my son it wasn't the game wardens it wasn't anybody's but my ex-wife's selfish conniving it, it took my son, but I got bitter. I started acting out stuff you'll see coming in part two that wasn't me and it wasn't for the love of hunting, but I got vengeance. And I really was kind of probably crying out for some attention to look into the injustice done to me because I was dragging deer out in a road caped off. I was doing stuff that you, you know, you wouldn't do if you were just in there trying to do it and get away with it because you loved to hunt. I started getting vengeance. And my buddy got on my case about that, and I said, hey, the more bucks I dust, the more somebody's going to have to raise an eyebrow, come down and see, you know, look into my situation and see who's really done the, the wrong. And it was the state of Texas. They, they had no right to give my son to my ex on her lies. I mean, I didn't see him again for 19 years. I can tell you right now, it's still stuck in my crawl, and I'm fixing to reveal everything that was done in part two coming up. It's all going to come out. I'm going to have my vindication. When's uh, When do you plan on releasing part two of the, the book? By November 1st.
I don't see why I can't have it by then. I've got, you know, I've got a good start, and, you know, I'm working on it now, and it's not going to take that long to get it typed on up. Uh, the typist is working right behind me, chapter at a time. It's not going to take that long to get it scanned in, pictures added, then in print by November 1st. That's what I'm shooting for. It may run a little late, but yeah. it's going to come out in November. Okay. Well, one of the stories that you had said in, or talked about in part one that I found really interesting was you had went to the, I think it was either the pawn shop or the grocery store or something to get some more rounds to go hunting and you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't get any. And so you, I think you titled the chapter homemade reloads Yeah. and yeah. I want to get a little bit more, uh, into the story of that and kind of how that worked out for you. Well, it worked out, I guess, because the two deer that I crippled up, I ended up finding it, but because of the problem I was having, I had a huge buck in a windmill trap get away on me. If I had a good solid round, I could have shot him offhand and, and not had to try to get on a fence post and make a perfect shot with that reduced charge. And, you know, trying to make that count, I took one more step, snapped the twig under my foot and alerted him and several other bucks that were in this mesquite inside a windmill trap. And they shot out of there like spring bucks and they were all big deer. And this one was another one of those 30 inch spread deer, but he also had long handlebars on both back tines. And I'm telling you to this day, I swear it, that buck tip to tip on those long handlebars, he's very close to 40 inch spread on them. No doubt about it in my mind. And see, at that point, I realized why Tom East was so adamant about trying to stop poachers in there that deep. He'd seen those deer out of a helicopter. He knew they were there. And he didn't—he couldn't bear the thought of somebody, some outlaw, coming in there and killing one of them deer like that. He knew what was there. And when I saw that group of bucks that day, I knew what was there. You know, I've heard a lot of the stories from the... The well workers that would fly helicopters to and from those wells out there checking the gauges on those wells. And they talked about, you know, double drop deer with just massive monster widespread racks and, you know, big old heavy double drop tines. And, you know, we all knew they were there and they are there. And, and in the latter years, a friend of mine took a 13 year old boy and he killed a 230 inch, 26 point buck with 12 inch double drops. Oh. And that just proved it once and for all. And when I was on that 27 day hunt, when they killed it, and I didn't find out about it for a month. But when this friend of mine, Big L, was measuring that deer, when he first got it in his hands, he said, Charlie always said they were there. And they were, they're there. Yeah, I mean, I was hunting the right ranch. If they were there, those dream bucks were there. But that homemade reload venture, yeah, yeah, I got caught with a front coming in quicker than they said on the weather, and I wanted to go on in. I wanted to go in and let the rain it produced as it entered that area to rinse my tracks out, wash the roads out behind me walking in. That was one of my other tricks. I love to go in with the front, middle of the night, knowing that the rain blowing in that night would wash all my tracks. So then you know, I was also in there on the first and best day. The first and best day is the first day. When that weather just hit and it's rainy and it's, you know, blowing hard out of the north, they've been fighting the heat a few days. They just go nuts. You rattle up a hundred bucks that day. Those days are the key days. So I'd like to go in on those and I wanted to go on in not wait and get some more shells the next day. I kind of got caught off guard. Well, I went 
non-gun stores were closed in town, but I remember seeing this uh, gun department at this Kroger, and it had reloading stuff, surprisingly enough, and I had some burnt brass for that 7mm rate, but I couldn't find anything to go with that except the primers, and I thought, well, I'll buy a box of seven mag shells. I pulled those bullets, and so I did. I extracted them. I, they sold primers. I bought primers. I rebooted my brass with primers, and then I just poured the powder out of those mag shells into each one to capacity and put those 140-grain bullets in there. No, they were 150s. They were 10 grains heavier than what I shot. In fact, reload was 140 for that 08. Well, I didn't get a good enough cramp. I put maybe too much powder and wasn't getting full ignition there's a couple of reasons i could have not been getting high speed out of them but i crippled you know they were when i test fired them later after crippling these deer then i found that they were three inches low at 50 yards and in the dirt at 100 they were real low velocity mm -hmm. so you know i did good to even kill the two deer i killed i, I found one seven weeks later with 16 points and then I can even set the 171 mark, and then I killed a 20 point that I didn't find until the next year. But he was in the low 160s, and I found him also that next year. But, you know, had I had good ammo, I, I don't know how the hunt would have went. But the way it went, I ended up seeing those giants in that windmill trap the next day after crippling those two, and it just blew my mind to see a deer with that much spread on the handlebars and stuff. I, I'd, I'd hoped that they were there, but then I knew they were there. I knew those dream bucks were there then. Yeah. yeah. So maybe we could talk about your your favorite deer that you ever harvested. You know, I think it was Big John is what you called him. Yeah. And what what was so special about that buck, you know, after seeing hundreds of, you know, really world-class deer, what was so special about Big John? Just the mass. He was a nine-and-a-half-year-old deer. It was a real wet hurricane year. All the deer were more massive that year. He just went into a league that none of them usually ever get by being at the right age and having genetics of a massive deer. He had all the knobby texture that a fully mature buck can have. You know, just gorilla mass with knobby, gnarly texture, chocolate horned deer. And he had 18 and a half inches height. He had 10 points, but he forked on one back time but he had that real big fork at back time, but his beams were just like at the third circumference, six and three-eighths around the beam. So he just carried his mass all the way out to the end of the beams. And, you know, he grossed 170, but the fork on one side would keep him out of the book. And all the, you know, the weight, all the outlaws down there told me, they said, we don't even have deer like that down here. We don't know how you killed one like that down here. And I said, well, you must have had one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had one like that. But they said, that's the one we're all looking for, you mm -hmm. know. And they named him Big John for me. I didn't know what to call him. And they were coming in the shop saying, Charles, I heard you done up in Shadow John. Where is he? I want to see him. And they just hoot and holler and say, that's Big John, all right. You know, them guys were nuts over that deal. Yeah. They said, you'll never do that again. And they were right. I never even saw one that massive again. Anywhere. Not in the brush. Not in the Kennedy. Not in the King Ranch. I never saw one that heavy anywhere again. Man. Yeah, the picture, that's the, for anyone that is, you know, looking to get a copy of the book, that's the deer that is on the cover of the book. And uh, he really is just a massive deer. 
it's deceiving. He's so massive, it takes away from that height of 18 and a half inches off the top of his head. And he had a 21 and a half, 21 and 5 eighths inch outside spread. And he just proportionally looked somewhat normal at a glance. And at a distance, you you, you didn't comprehend it. But when you held him in your hands, that's when you, you felt the full impact. Mm-hmm. He's, he's my top deer ever. Yeah, I mean, even though you've you've killed deer that would score a little bit better, that's the deer right. that you, you know, that yeah. you would you would say is the optimal one because of the. Well, in the same room with seventeen others, he dwarfed them all by triple. Just no questions asked. You know, you can walk around and look at them all and appreciate their character, but when you walk back to Big John, he just smoked everything in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how did you, if you had all these deer that you had poached and, you know, you had, you, since you're a taxidermist, you can mount them all. I mean, how did you, how did you go so, you know, undetected with not ever getting caught for having all those horns? Well, at the first seven year mark, I was not shooting more than one or two good ones a year except that one year. Yeah. And that when I killed those six. But I'm telling you, the, the, the record keeping at the taxidermy shops was the big reason they, that wasn't required then and we did all our own tanning there at the shop so i didn't have to check in scouts to some tannery there was really no no way they could count how many you know i wouldn't come forward with, with just the amount i was legally allowed to have i mean i only showed those two deer out of the six that one year and tell anybody else about the rest of them yeah you know what was the deer that that you took to the outlaw uh, contest for the or or some book contest? You won some sort of contest with a deer one year. Yeah, I won a rifle with that one eighty, but I killed on the hunt when I blew it on the one ninety typical and the thirty inch buck. Um, you know that deer had twelve typical points. He had, uh, I say typical. He had forks that came off way low on the beam. They were eight inch long forks. And in some cases like that, when it's exactly the same on both sides, some measuring scores would, even officials, they would, it's a call, it's a judgment call. They could call that thing completely typical. If they did, he's a Boone and Crockett. You know, if it's got the same girth on both sides being that close to the beam, they can classify that typical. But he was a 180 gross, dead ringer, 180 buck, gross everything. Yeah. And he would have scored more than that if they would have called him a book deer and gave you that tremendous circumference at the third girth. Mm-hmm. So in the in the you know the heart of or in the middle of all this, I guess your prime, you would say, was there was there anything that you know you wouldn't do to kill a deer? I mean, or was there would you just about kill yourself to get back in there and get after a buck, you know, like that? Yeah, yeah, because I nearly froze to death. I've you know I've endured. A lot of uh, hard, you know, life-threatening weather. There was a couple of times when, you know, it was actually life-threatening that it was so cold. And I wasn't prepared for it. I learned to get prepared for it over time. But there's a couple of times I didn't think I was going to make it out alive. I mean, I've come out on one leg before after straining a hamstring in the back of my thigh, you know, just tripped, fell forward, caught myself. You know, I've got some stories coming in part two that just make part one just a bore i mean as good as it is i've got more coming in part two it's, it's 10 to 1 better material 
the hunts, the deer, the, the you know the humor, the people I took, you know, counting the cops and <laughs> some others, and all the shit that happened and the pursuit, the hot pursuit. It got rougher, you know, those last nine years. It got the heat got back on. They knew I was hunting again. They vowed to get me. They were putting everything they could into trying to catch me. And, you know, I felt the heat. We had some, you know, we had a lot of pressure. Yeah. So could you give me a little uh, little context into the night that, or the day that you got caught and kind of kind of how that how that went down? And I know you, you had a little bit of a spiritual element to it, too. You know, how you how. I think you said you heard a voice from God telling you you were gonna get caught, and so how did that how did that happen? Well, that's exactly what happened. You know, I'd grown tired of the poaching, and I wanted to quit. I was looking for an excuse to quit, sort of like what little pride I had in it with my outlaw buddies. I had to save face. I couldn't just bow out and you know have them laugh and mock me and say I was turning coward or chicken. So I, you know, I thought, well, you know, I'm just gonna keep doing it until I get some kind of an excuse and it wasn't like i planned to get caught but the summer before i got caught i was alone on the river fishing and i told god you know i said all right i'm tired of the poaching I'm tired of the outlaw hunting if i gotta give it up i'm ready to give it up and you got a plan for my life like you've told me through some people in the church back when i was going to church six years i said let's get on with it i'm tired i'm ready to go on with your plan for me so you know, nothing was said outside of that. Went on into the hunting season. The time marched on. I went on back hunting. And I'd gone with some other guys and taken some other people and then went on hunts by myself. But I got up in the brush and I was trying to climb a tree and get a bearing on where I wanted to go next. And while I'm up in that tree, I heard voices like sound like a radio on a pickup, you know, some kind of static and radio transmission. And I knew there was a vehicle near me, and I don't know if they were on foot, but it sounded more like squelching on a, on a radio inside a truck. And I, I took off running, got down there that tree as quick as I could, took off running, and didn't see it. But there was a Sendero, and I ran across it right in front of that truck. He was rumbling down that Sendero a couple hundred yards away, and he poured the coals to it. And I just broke and ran right up in this real heavy brush. When I did, you know, I heard God say, you will be caught this year and i laughed and i said yeah right they're gonna catch the king and i plowed up in that real heavy brush and i was wearing them mop bottom boots they couldn't attract me if they tried and he said it again he said you will be caught this year well that was in mid-january well come february the 5th i'm over there in the kennedy and i get caught but he you know he had told me i would be caught that year and so you know that was that that season and when I got stood up after being caught, you know, he said it again. I told you, you would be caught this year. And that just tied it together for me. I went, okay, this is all the hand of God, and he's, he's going to finally show me. After nine years of wondering, he's going to show me what his plan is for my life. But I've gone another, hell of it is, I've gone another, you know, 20-plus years without any word on what to do. Went through a big battle with cancer for the last 15, last 16 years. Didn't think I'd live, and I've survived it. And my dad was able to help me get part one out there. And it's like I'm finally seeing a direction. And I know I've got a lot to tell in, in part two. I know my purpose. I've just I've seen the blueprint. I've just not been able to understand why it hadn't developed yet. Yeah. But it's it's developing now. 
And I imagine by Christmas, everybody's going to see full circle what my purpose is. Yeah. It it is the plan of God, and it is going to come to pass. So without giving giving all of part two away, what could you give us a little bit of insight into you know what your purpose is is it a is it a for you know to promote ethical hunting to promote these you know these stories of you know if you you want something bad enough you can do it or, or what what is it well you know d all the above you know somebody's got to warn all these kids that are fixing to go out and get themselves in a bunch of trouble and lose their right to bear arms and hunt they're going to commit a felony if they go do any poaching and they get caught they can be banned for life from hunting uh, you know, somebody's got to warn them. And if I can kind of entertain them with what I did, kind of pacify that element of curiosity and give them a word to the wise not to do that, it's not worth the risk, then that's a good achievement. But I've got a testimony for God about my faith. But I've got some stuff coming that I cannot reveal yet. Mm-hmm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to shock the nation. You know, it, it's a big, profound, current issue of our day, and I can't say any more than that without giving it completely away. But I've seen some stuff that I'm going to tell, you know, I mean, I, I can't disclose anymore without telling what it is. But it's serious business, and God's going to use me as a voice about this matter, and, and our nation needs to hear it. And I believe when that comes out, this book is fixing to go nationwide. It's, gonna, it's not going to be just the hunting world that's interested in it when they hear what it's about. Okay. It's, a two, you know, it's a double-sided coin. Cool. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to that that second. If it's anything like part one, or you like you say, it's a little better. I'm excited to read it. Yeah, the, the spiritual part of it is so severe. If it doesn't cause someone to repent, they deserve to go to hell when they die. I got some stuff. I got some stuff that ought to shake everybody into repentance. Now, I can't tell you what it is yet, but it's rough. It's serious. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, is there anything about, uh, you know, your life as an outlaw, you know, an ex-outlaw deer hunter now, but is there anything about it that, that you would, you regret or, or you would change, or is it just part of your testimony? I wished I would have never had to go back to the poaching. You know, I wished that the marriage would have worked out, my business would have worked out. I, you know, I was not financially successful with my own taxidermy shop. All I'd done is just struggle trying to get it going. Getting married just gave me no chance to make it. You know, my wife was a spendthrift, and she wrote checks all over town and left me trying to go crazy covering her spending. And she thought as long as you had checkbooks, you had money. Well, she drove me nuts, and and uh, she forced me to have a vasectomy, too, and I had horrible complications with that. Ended up having another surgery later to clean up the mess and prevent me from ending up with cancer from that. And, you know, I'm real angry and bitter about that, too. That doomed and damned our marriage from the start when she forced me to do that. And so, I, I mean, I hated her immediately, and the marriage was no good didn't work out. If, if I could do anything over again, I sure wouldn't have let her push me into that. And, then, you know, that would have changed the direction of my whole life from that point forward. You know, I didn't have any desire to stay with her after that. I got so frustrated and in so much chronic pain, and it just shipwrecked our marriage. I mean, I could hear about her getting run over by a train tomorrow, and I'd laugh. I still hate that woman for what she did to me. And, you know, there's no way I can take back and change what she did. It's permanent damage. It ruined my intimacy for life, and I have nothing for her. 
she can't die and go to hell soon enough to suit me. That ain't very Christian. But I'm permanently damaged and I can never get over that. I got to live with that the rest of my life. So it, it just, it was all out of my control is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. My life spiraled downhill from the day I got married forward. It was the worst mistake I ever made in my life was to get married when I was trying to develop my own business and live a changed life. That's the last thing I needed. That was worse than tying a boat anchor around somebody's neck and having them try to swim the ocean. It just ruined my whole life to get married. Yeah. And that led you that led you after that six years back into the poaching again. Yeah, after I'd lost everything I had, I didn't have anything to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, after I got back started it, I lost my fear of going to jail again. And I did. I started acting out my anger, my bitterness for all the injustice. You know, losing my son to that lying, you know what. And it's just like, to this day, I can't get back the 19 years she stole from me and him and my family. You know, none of us got to see him again. She tucked her coward tail around her rear for all the felonies she committed to steal custody, and she never came back to Texas. She's still hiding in Oklahoma now. Oh, no. What? What? You have no idea what part of Oklahoma? I know exactly where she's at, but, you know, it doesn't matter. Right. I mean, she's a nervous wreck right now, worried I'm going to come out with, you know, all the information on what she did. She's got a reason to be, because I am. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm not telling anything that ain't the truth. But, you know, I, I was done a horrible injustice, not by just her, not by just her attorneys, but by the state of Texas. And I'm not going to divulge all that right now because it's coming in part two. But I'll tell you this. When people see what was done to me by her in, in the state of Texas, they'll understand. They'll wonder why I didn't flip out completely and go kill a bunch of innocent people or something. You know, pull a <laughs> Timothy McVeigh and bomb a building or something. I mean, the state of Texas can kiss my ass. You know, not Parks and Wildlife, but the people that pulled their injustice on me, and I'll tell what branches they are. I'll tell the whole story in part two. But I'm still angry. I've got a bone to pick, and I'm going to pick it clean. I'm fixing to vindicate myself from every wrong injustice done to me. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry that you had to go through that, and I'm uh, look forward to you know at least learning about it, and, and you know kind of why why you went back to you know what you had reverted from in the past, and you know what's what's been going on. So yeah, I, I got a big chip on my shoulders, but I'm fixing to get it off. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Now, one thing I wanted to ask, you know, just to just to wrap up here is. You know, as far as the unhunted land goes and deep within the King and the Kennedy, I know they might be a little bit smaller and segmented now. Do you think that there's still that kind of world-class hunting down in South Texas today? There's no doubt about it. They just killed the new Texas record this past season during both seasons. This guy hunting Neil got down there shot a 300 gross, oh. 44 scoreable points. Shot at Neil Guy hunting. I think he was on a feeder near Raymondville. I've got pictures of the deer. A friend of mine down there sent me a little video clip and some pictures. And uh, it's an incredible deer. I mean, it is so incredible. I can't even describe it. You'd have to see a picture of it. And he said there was another one with him 
nearly that big. And, you know, they came right in on him in the fog, and he bow killed him about 10 o'clock in the morning out of his stand. Now, he was hunting nail guy, trying to kill some nail guy to make tacos, tamales out of. And here comes these two monster book deer. Wow. That's yeah. that's absolutely insane. Yeah, it's all low fence. It, it had nothing to do with some kind of high fence deal. So, do you think, what would, I know in your experience that it didn't work out as far as the political game of getting a hunt king or Kennedy, but what what advice would you give to someone that would want to legally go hunt some world-class deer down there, but they don't have the money to lease something on the King or the Kennedy Ranch? Uh, the last I heard about the King Ranch, it's $20,000 or more to hunt and, and, and be guaranteed a 170-class deer, gross everything. Um, and it's like a two- to three-year waiting list to even get on it. And I'm sure it's worse now than when I heard that several years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no telling what they're going for but on a guided hunt three to five days you don't have any guarantee of the weather you don't have any guarantee of what you're going to get you could pay a big fee and go on a hunt and then not see nothing it can be a watch because of bad weather even at the right time of year so you know it's a it's a shot in the dark and that was what my boss would be amazed by he would see us come out with these big deer all the time, almost every time. And he would see all the pay hunters that paid 5000 and more to shoot deer. And here would be these cull bucks to be mounted. That's all they saw. And that was King Ranch hunts. That was some other hunts and big ranches down there. And so, you know, that was what I was up against. I didn't want an average buck. I wanted the biggest one I could get. That is the big, real basis for why I did what I did. I wanted a dream buck. I wanted the sky to be the limit. I wasn't taking a chance on wasting my time hunting some lease and being limited. You know, I wanted the giant. Not one of them. I wanted them all. <laughs> so that's, that's why I hunted the way I did when I did it. I'm not going to hide that. I wanted the biggest one I could get every time I could get one. I did pass thousands of deer over my career. I passed thousands. I don't know how many thousand, three, four thousand. I don't know how many, but I passed thousands of deer. And, you know, when people hear we brought 116 out, you know, they think it's a lot of deer that we killed everything we saw, but we did not pass thousands of deer. I would pass on the average, I think, five or six hundred a year, a season. Wow. As, you know, one journalist interviewed me once and he said, um, I can't remember the. the Oh, I should be able to remember this guy's name, but he was supposedly the only man who'd ever rattled up a thousand and nine deer. Wooters. John Wooters. He said, what do you think about that? You think he's telling the truth? I said, sure he is. I said, that's about one season for me and George. (laughs) He said, you're shitting me. I said, no. We rattle up 500 apiece every year. Easy. But that's just how good the hunting is down there. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing I heard the other day with a guy I was talking to on the podcast was, you know, you're only you're only as good as the ground you hunt, and that is that is you know proven very true with with South Texas. Mm-hmm. There's no question about it. Yeah, I mean, rattling them at night is even more effective. The drawback is you can't judge them. 
mm-hmm. and you you know everything over 150 is going to look like a 160 170 and it's just impossible to tell which one you really ought to shoot right it's, just, it's confusing so if someone wants to get a copy of the prince of poachers part one where's the best place for them to do that or if, if they want to keep up with you on social media where can they do that yeah they can go on instagram and facebook and find a way to go to my my website but it's just www.princeofpoachers.com and uh, it'll take you you know you type that in it'll take you straight to you know how to order it and have it sent right out all my orders go out every day except sunday all right well i i got a feeling that some people are going to want to you know get a little bit deeper into your story but i really appreciate you you know taking some time out to talk with me about it in depth yeah you know all that personal side is going to come and, and go and a big bunch of more hunting is going to follow and and you know I, I'm not sure exactly at what point I'm going to I'm, I'm thinking probably right at the end I'm going to blow everybody's mind with what I've got spiritually to tell and you know kind of finish the book with that but um, I still haven't made up my mind but I'm telling you it's 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 fixing to be a ride like you won't get reading part one and if you enjoyed part one you know get ready fasten your seatbelt, prepare for liftoff because what i got coming in part two nobody's gonna see it coming they're not gonna expect this it's gonna shock everybody <laughs> and you know i'm shocked about it happening myself but god showed me this because he knew i would have this platform and it's big and it's going to make my platform even bigger. But what I've got to share with America is big. It's enormous. It's nuclear. I mean, I, I was confused as to why this is taking so long to come about. And I was, I'll give you this much. I was jogging, fighting this cancer, trying to stay fit, and see if that wouldn't help me beat it. And it kept me alive at one point. I would have died if I hadn't thought it would exercise for 10 years. But I stopped from jogging one day and god knows i know the power in this testimony i've got that it's nuclear and he's shown me a a dream and a vision about it being nuclear to show me he understands that that's what it is and so i said why won't you get me well so i can give my testimony and he said charlie you don't fire your nukes to end the war only no to win the war only he said, you fire your nukes to end the war. And so that's what this is going to do. This, I, this will do it. This will stop all the debate. Anybody wondering any more about this topic, and it's going to settle it once and for all. And I'll give you one more to go on. It's a final warning from God to America. If America don't repent, it's going to be curtains. We're in the last days. And, you know, what God has to do before he brings judgment is he's got to warn everybody. He's always been just because he's always warned every time he's judged the nation and brought them down from not repenting. But he's fixing to do that, and I am one of the voices he's going to use to warn everybody. Now, it's up to them what they do with it. And, and you know, but he will be just to do whatever he's going to do concerning judgment once they've heard. They're without excuse then. I believe everyone's going to hear about this, a large number. If not everyone, almost everyone's going to hear this. The word's going to get out on it. 
Well, I'm I'm looking forward to to that book and to reading reading more into it, man. And I once again, I really appreciate you you coming on and and giving me some of your time. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, and I'd I'd love to to chat with you once part two's out and maybe talk to talk to that a little bit a little bit yeah, too. Well, well, I'm banned from selling my book right now at Texas Trophy Hunter Show, but I am gonna be there. Okay. I'm going to be at all three Houston, Fort Worth, San Antonio shows. Cool. And, and I'm offering free autographs on any pre-purchased copies that anybody wants to come by with and have me signed. They're not going to stop me from doing that. They said I could do that. Awesome. Well, man, I really, I once again, I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for talking with me. And uh, you have a good night. I'll let you know when this episode's ready to go. Okay. I'd love to have a copy of it and listen to it. Yeah. You bet, man. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Christian. Yep. Take it easy, Charles. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it, and we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.